I'm Mark. And I'm Shirley. And I'm Jim. And this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet where you can hear topics discussed. Uh, Mark, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? Uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm Mark um, and I'm a human uh, and I don't really do uh, that much that's pluggable. So, nah, I'm good. Uh, Shirley, same question. Similarly, not super plugged in. Um, <laughs> so that's great. But uh, yeah, also a human, this <laughs> living on planet Earth, like, yeah. as humans do. My favorite episodes of this podcast are the ones with people who have no internet presence. Yeah, um, I, have, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> yeah, and why should you? Why should anybody? It's- yeah, although you realize that now that now that I'm on this podcast, now that we're here, now we have internet presence. That's true. And you're, and you're going to have to deal with the fallout of that. I wash my hands of it. Would you like to discuss some topics? Love topics. Mark, your topic here is living abroad slash the TK, TCK experience. So I um, I grew up abroad. My, my parents are uh, educators and I lived in, in Liberia and Portugal and Pakistan and South Africa when I was all before all kind of before high school was out, which is a hell of an experience. I'll tell you what. And those are called, those are called third culture kids. Yeah. 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 So a third culture kid is someone who, have I got this right? I explained this to someone else on a previous episode, but I hope I got it right. Uh, That a third culture kid is someone who um, is born to American parents, but grew up abroad, like most commonly like army brats. Yeah. That's a pretty common type of third culture kid. Um, generally speaking, third culture kids will, will be either uh, the children of people in the military, um, the children of missionaries, uh, the children of educators, and occasionally the children of like corporate type people, like um, oil company uh, executives, or like like Coca Cola is a classic one. Uh, Hilarious, huh? that's funny. Uh, <laughs> amusingly, because they. Um, Coke is like everywhere in the whole world, you know, like I, I think I read that like that like 99% of humans are within five minutes of a Coca-Cola at any given moment, you know? Wow. Yeah. That's terrifying. <laughs> Just, That's better than water, probably. It, for sure, better than water. <laughs> and so for that reason, there are like Coke execs, you know, in every every far-flung corner of the earth. So there, there's always like a Coke kid, uh, like every international school. Um, yeah, that's broadly it. Um, the way I've heard it explained is like your first culture is your parents' culture, and your second culture is the is the culture that sort of surrounds you. It's like where you where you physically are, and for most people, those are the same culture. And then the third culture is the sort of combined effect of both of those things that creates this sort of unifying culture among people who grew up in that type of situation, which is sort of different, is sort of disjointed from any physical place. It's like how when you go number two and number one at the same time, you call it number three. (laughs) That's exactly right, Jim. uh, I've never heard it put more perfectly. That's going to be the pitch from now on. That's the pitch from now on. So I was like, oh, what's a third culture kid? Well, you know. (laughs) Well, let me tell you. (laughs) Let me tell you. Yeah. um, And growing up in all these different places, 
it seems to have given you like a lot of, let's say, open mindedness, for lack of a better term. Like I remember specifically um, taking a uh, it was called the implicit association test. It, the, the way it works is that it will show you like pictures of black people and pictures of white people and ask you to classify them one way or the other. Then it'll show you th- like words that are good and words that are bad and asks you to classify them one way or the other. And then it mixes them up. And then uh, you have to classify them into either like white people and words that are good or black people and words that are bad. And then it switches those around and asks you to classify white people and words that are bad and black people and words that are good. And if you're like being honest and trying to go as fast as you can, a lot of people, probably most people have a much easier time classifying the words white people with the words that are good versus black people with the words that are good. And there are also like alternate versions of this with like different religions and other races. Um, and you were the only person that I have heard of that got a perfect score, like a perfect even score on the first try. (laughs) That's funny. So that, so that, yeah, that test, that test is called the, the implicit bias test. It, it's actually, um, at the time that, you and I probably, I'm guessing that we did this when we were like living together or sometime. Yeah. Yeah. So at the time that I did it at that time, I was much closer to my experiences living overseas, probably only a few years removed from them. So now I'm, you know, going to school for psychology and cognitive neuroscience. And I have since had to take that test for classes much more recently and I have become more implicitly biased, which is really interesting and depressing. That makes sense. The, the effects of, of living in, in the U S have, have made me, they've taken their toll. They've taken my, taken their toll. It's exactly correct. Is it really interesting? But you know, that idea of implicit bias. So there's like another test that, you know, you learn about if you spend enough time (laughs) as a psych major where uh, basically they took, um, kids, little kids and showed them pictures of human faces and, uh, asked them to, uh, choose between two, a, a black person's face and a white person's face and asked them to assign attributes to them. Uh, and they give them attributes. So like, which one is the pretty one or which one is the honest one or which one is the liar or which one is the thief? So I'm sure you can see where it's going. I, I do see where it's going. <laughs> yeah. So little kids being little kids tend to, uh, assign the negative attributes to the black faces and the positive ones to the white faces, which is upsetting. But what's even more upsetting than that is that um, that is true of little black kids. So like little little black kids also respond in that way. And I think that that is a chilling reminder of the extent to which our society... Yeah. Internalized racism, I think is the term. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is just, t- you know, that like without ever meaning to you know you're without or without without uh, there ever probably being like an explicit lesson about racism you know kids are turning out racist which is a real bummer it's, yeah it's upsetting 
I mean, as evidenced by my increased implicit bias score, the longer I lived in the U.S., right? Like, yeah. The, yeah. Well, and, and I think it's fair to say that you can you can attribute racism to the culture or the country. I think pretty fairly as a result of that, like a stru- structural racism. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. So what you need, um, and what everybody needs, is to go on a third culture kid refresher course. Mm. <laughs> where your your parents go abroad and you move with them. You spend a bunch of time around you know, Pakistani people and in South Africa. And then you never come back. And then you never come back. Because <laughs> why would you? <laughs> this, is the, this is the racist place. Yeah. <laughs> Once you set your foot I mean, back on American yeah. soil, you... Uh... Well, I think, I think like part of it is that you, when you're, as, as I am, a, 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 a white dude... Um, living in a country where, you know, you're really the super minority, like in actually in most of the places I lived, not Portugal so much, but in, in Pakistan, for sure, you're like the super minority. So there's a sort of like t- temptation to be like, oh, I know what it's like to be a minority because like I lived in Pakistan where like there were hardly any other white people, but n- n- no, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> That's like, it's, it, it, I think it's like, it makes you aware of you know like sort of the some of the realities of like you know you get stared at which is like maybe not so great but for the most part like as a white person living in in pakistan it is known that you are an outsider and you know you don't belong to that culture so you're sort of like free from prejudice in that culture like people like when i lived in pakistan like nobody no one was prejudiced against me in pakistan like everyone was super nice like i never had anything but positive experiences uh with only a very small number of nominal exceptions you go to like a street vendor and they're super nice i was was like you know in middle school like taking taxis all over the city and you know going out go out to eat my friends and stuff and it was just like a really completely normal kind of place to live and i've had people in the u.s say that to me like oh wow that's so interesting like like you know you must have this interesting perspective of, like what you know what it's like to be a minority it's like no man not really like white people are white people weirdly all over the world you're still not really like you're not you're not experiencing that experience that that same experience you know well presumably a lot of it is that the u.s exports its culture really effectively right yeah they still watch american tv and movies everywhere basically even like among people in America, like I found it really interesting, even as a teenager, um, I like went on a trip for, with a bunch of people from Michigan and they had like Midwest accents and they perceived that those of us in the group from California did not have accents and did not sound different from them, I think, because a lot of like media is based in California. And so so they were like, no, like you you just sound normal and have no accent. So even in a smaller space, Mm. you're just perceived as like, you're what's being put out there. So it's even more accepted. Yeah. That's interesting. You guys ready for another topic? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Surely your topic here is cam girl life. That's right. Yeah. I was a cam girl for five, six years, which is like a million years in cam girl. (laughs) Cam girl time because most cam girls are only only cam girls for like six months. <laughs> honestly, like one month. <laughs> were they were they treating you like veterans by the end of it? Like other cam girls were looking up to you with respect. Honestly, yes. <laughs> it's kind of weird. 
<laughs> because like to actually make it that long is a generally unusual in the industry. And is is that a factor of like you make less money over time? Like people are excited about you at first or you just get sick of the lifestyle or? Both of those are elements. There are so many different reasons. I think like a person sort of running out of steam is a big element, like not putting enough into it or maybe starting and realizing that it's significantly more work than they thought it was going to be. Like they thought they were just going to turn on the camera and the money was just going to like pour down around them because it's what it, it's (laughs) actually what it looks like is happening for those who are really successful. It looks like they're just smiling and that, that the money is just flowing in when in fact, like, just an immense amount of work is happening for them and has happened for them behind the scenes. So then when someone joins, you know, that industry, they really think it's going to like, just be just like that for them. And they don't adjust. Mm -hmm. Some do, many do, but the vast majority, I think just get frustrated immediately. And they didn't realize that they were actually going to have to put some, time and thought and a lot of effort into it. And considering the sheer number of um, people who are available for people to pay and watch, like if you're not doing something special, then there's really no reason for them to stop on someone who's uh, boring (laughs) or not putting the effort in. Like there's no sitting there on their phone in a darkened room. Oh my God. Yes. (laughs) That is literally, yes. So many, so many, um, in in silence people, it's like that. And they think that that's enough and then it isn't. And they just kind of drop off and that happens very quickly. Yeah. That's all right. That's part of the industry. It's fun. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, it's also really hard to make a living. So, it's difficult to do in your spare time because it does take a lot of like time and energy and people maybe don't realize how draining it is. So it's hard to have like another job and be a cam girl. So, but then it's also very difficult to make it profitable enough that you can quit your job and do it full time. So um, being able to do it full time for that, that amount of time is like very difficult. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine scary too, because there's no, I mean, this is part of why I left a huge reason is because there's like no, there's no safety net. Like you can log on one day and then no one, like no one's in the mood to talk to you or no one's in the mood to spend the money. And then you come away with maybe literally zero. And then you could log on one day and make like a thousand dollars. And you just like made a bunch of jokes and did some karaoke and like, <laughs> which sounds like a lot of my time, but, um, <laughs> but like it truly can be zero one day or zero, a bunch of days in a row. And then you have to decide when you yeah. pull out and when, you know, when you just try harder or if it's just a slump. So it's really scary. So it was really, um, a big reason I left was primarily like security that you don't know that you're going to get solid money in on a regular basis. And there was a time in there where, where Shirley was really supporting both of us. You know, there was like a period in there where I didn't have a job and Shirley was the, the, the primary, uh, you know, she, she was winning all the bread <laughs> and that is a, uh, that is a stressful situation. You know, it's hard, especially when, when the, when the money is like, sometimes you got good days and you got bad days and a few, only a couple bad days stack up and you start sweating, you know? <laughs> 
(laughs) (laughs) The reality is like becoming a cam girl was like such a liberation of a time that was way harder because it was sort of like leaving retail life like was made possible by like through camming. So even that was better than before in some ways. But then it's hard because you do at least get like regular money if you're working retail. Well, yeah, that's pretty much the only thing to be said for it. Is that yes. it's, well, even even then you have to worry about like, uh, are they going to cut your hours? Yeah. Yeah, that is a that is a concern. But or, if- or like most retail most retail jobs, you know, are not you know you're you're just completely expendable. You know, like you're you get paid very little and. You get treated pretty poorly and there's usually not benefits or if there are, they're not great. And, you know, if you, and there's always, in my experience with retail, it was always this like, like, if you don't like it, you can walk, you know, which <laughs> is like a joke. <laughs> but like such an interesting part of even, of like camming that I didn't expect when I started was like how much more um, going coming from retail, like you sort of have this idea of people who are working in that industry as maybe being oppressed in some way or that they're having some difficult time. But it was kind of amazing because for me, it was like so much, I had so many more opportunities to like do what I wanted. So um, I was like working part-time at both for a while. And it was kind of amazing because I realized I could like make my own choices and that like it retail is kind of like slavery and that I was suddenly like able to like say what I wanted is so, was so weird when I could finally do that. Yeah. I, the, the stereotype is that sex work is degrading, you know? Um, but I feel like, especially if you compare it to like, if your previous life was working retail, I bet you're a lot more respected in this other, this new job. Yes. <laughs> I like would explain that a lot of times too, because I mean, for me, like for, for like my style of camming was definitely a lot of like conversation and even people sort of asking questions about camming, like sort of talking about camming. And a lot of times I spent a lot of time almost like educating people who were coming to watch my show on the fact that like not everyone who does that work is free and happy, but that for many of us, especially in the community that I was in, like had so much more freedom, like the ability to say no when you don't want to do something was so much more present than it was in retail. Like in retail, you actually don't have the ability to like consent in the same way. Like you just have to do it and you have to like deal with the worst people and you have to stand there and be real nice. Smile and be polite. And you can't block the worst customers. Yeah. Somebody comes in and is super abusive and you work in retail, you just take it. You know, you just get abused. Somebody comes into a camera's room and is abusive and shitty. They just get immediately banned. Like they're, they're gone. Just gone. They're gone. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. You have like a set of rules and you, you say no to what you don't want. And if someone's a jerk, they're not going to, they're not going to get to stay. So it kind of doesn't support itself because if someone's really a jerk, then they really don't have the platform. Like you don't give them the time. And so they got nothing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
What an interesting time that was. That's a very interesting time. It's I. It wasn't even that long ago that I stopped, but it feels like it was a million years ago. Yeah, it does. It's like another another life. <laughs> it's like it's a significant sea changes like that. Like it is like one person dying and another person being born. Effectively, mm. that's like, yeah. That's actually really true. Yeah, I feel like I feel that way sometimes. Like with with like the path I've taken because I like I'm like 34, you know, and I spent all this time in retail just like feeling like I could eventually get to a life I wanted if I stuck with it and muscled through the hard times, you know, like, which is just a fairy tale I told myself, (laughs) but you know, I I really thought I believed it for a long time and I did that for so much longer than I should have. And and then even when I stopped doing that, I ended up in another job that sucked. You know, like I like went to, you know, before I even really worked retail, I, I went to culinary school because I thought I, you know, would want to cook because uh, I had a passing interest in it. And what I learned in culinary school was basically that, you know, I, I, I like cooking and I have a, a some kind of aptitude for it. And I just never want to do that professionally, you know, like that that world is so toxic and crappy. Yeah, that's my understanding. Like if working in a restaurant, like I I don't know why anybody would choose that. Well, like it it can be fun. I mean, like there there there's a kind of a very exciting energy that happens when it's really busy and you're in a team of people, you know, cool people and and you're all really kicking a lot of ass together. I mean, like there is there is something very exciting and exhilarating about that, but the but the work is brutal, you know, the it's exhausting and you know, you're on your feet for, you know, I was working for this catering company and I, you know, I would work 15, 16 consecutive hours with no breaks, you know, like just on your feet the entire time and, you know, grab a, a grab something to eat in a spare second. Just reach, reach into the catering tray and scoop out a, a bite oh, for literally yourself. you're not wrong, dude. <laughs> I know it's horrible and gross, but it's it's definitely the case. Or it would be like, oh, like hors d'oeuvres, you know, you'd like, you'd like go out, you know, I did, I did like everything at, at this carrying company at one point or another, you know, so when I was like serving, you know, you go out with like a tray of, of like hors d'oeuvres that you pass out and then you'd like try to get back to the kitchen before the tray's empty. You like <laughs> keep an eye on the tray and see how many are left. And then when it gets down to just like two or three, you start trying to like head back to the kitchen so that when you get back, maybe there's like one or two left and you just like quick shove them in your mouth while you're walking through the kitchen doors and hope your boss doesn't fucking see you. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember ordering... It was like at a tapas place. I ordered uh, the deviled eggs and they brought out three halves of a deviled egg. What? (gasps) Surely not. (laughs) I think that's actually like what the order was. Like a order of deviled eggs is three halves. But I think it just means like the the chef decided, you know what? I'm just going to take the deviled egg tax. Every time I make two deviled eggs, I'm going to eat half of one. Oh man, that is probably They're building bad. it in there for the yeah. team. Oh yeah, and that's that's respecting your team. And it was a it was a nice place. Like when I asked for mayonnaise, they asked me if aioli was okay. Oh wow. <laughs> oh man, that's like the is Pepsi okay of, of the <laughs> fancy restaurant 
situation, <laughs> except it's like <laughs> it's like the opposite. It's like if someone said, is Coke okay because you asked for Pepsi, but who would ask for Pepsi? What? <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Wait, what? Is that is that controversial? Controversial. Opinion? I don't know. Right, am, am I going to get like hate mail now, Jim? No, because no, you didn't provide any identifying information. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> You're not plugged just on, in. Just on the Twitter. It's like, that son of a bitch, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> If I can see that dude, I'm gonna kick his ass. With the Pepsi <laughs> clan out there. Yeah. I was gonna say, but yeah, so like I, I, did, I did this this kitchen work, and you know, like, and I felt like, yeah, that was gonna be, that was gonna be better, you know, and I and I was able to like make more money and get into a better position, you know. I worked at that catering company, and eventually was able to work my way up to a position where I was like selling events, you know, I was like a salesperson, you know, subcontracting for musicians and dance floors and stuff and flowers or whatever selling wet basically you know i was just an event an event coordinator but you know you make better money doing that but it was just a similar situation where i was just like this sucks so much and i hate it and i can't see it getting to a place where it's like if i I could follow this career path to you know a point where i could really make a living from it and it's and it would suck so i left that and to your sort of point about like, you know, feeling like you, someone died and then a new person was born, I like decided I wanted to go back to college and which I had, you know, dropped out when I was like 19 or whatever from, from college. And I'm like, you know, I was like 29 or something when I first went back to college and like, and it was just suddenly I had this realization that like, fuck man, I should have been doing this the whole time. Like, it's so, it's <laughs> going for psychology, which is cool and all but you know then i discovered that neuropsychology is a thing i got really into neuroscience and you know the this whole process has just led me to a point where i realized that i should have been working on becoming a scientist all of that time and i think in my head it was like i was always thinking that way and i just never found a way to like channel it into the right spot figuring that out at 34 like that's better than a lot of people do so <laughs> Oh, that's nice. Doing it. Yeah. <laughs> my brothers are like, my one brother is just like always been an artist. He's just like crushing it. Although I guess he's a teacher Yeah, now. I was about to say. Actually, yeah, he actually, you're right. He just switched up. He's a teacher now. So yeah, fair fair point. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. He's He uh, he got a job at a school doing like programming and engineering and, you know, like he basically like teaches kids how to, at a high school, like teaches kids how to like, you know, execute their projects yeah know? he has like a workshop yeah he's like a workshop they make stuff yeah very cool they make robots and shit i don't know what do you, i don't even know what his like what the name of that class is it's like the super cool it's, the, it's like stuff yeah class. it's the like you go to a really cool like high school class yes yes you go to a cool high school and your teacher is very cool and he has a top knot and yeah he sure does <laughs> none of my teachers had top knots no i didn't have any of that yeah, on. dude. Yeah, all the teachers at that school are really like god tier hipsters. <laughs> Excellent. Are uh, you guys ready for another topic? Yeah, yeah. Let's 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 do another one. You got one, Jen? Yeah. My topic here is why don't most animals need to learn to walk? So, you know, babies are born like a year early because their head just gets too big, and if they waited till they were like really viable in the outside world they wouldn't be able to fit through the birth canal. And so like 
the, the first year of having a kid is basically like just you're pregnant for an extra year. Mm. <laughs> Only it's harder. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. A more challenging pregnancy. <laughs> right. Yes. Where like, you look at like horses or any sort of quadruped, they're walking the instant they're born. Like they're born and they walk over and start nursing. And Winston, like it took him forever to learn to walk. What's that about? <laughs> yeah. Like he, you know, people say they grow up so fast, but he's our, uh, oh, what's the, what's the, there's a word for like when someone is like deliberately slow at work, but I can't remember what <laughs> uh- it is. Yeah. Dude. Oh God. I know that word, but he's doing that thing. Well, no, he's, he's actually like, he's, he's trying, he's learning so much faster than like, I, I'm, I'm extremely jealous of how quickly he can pick things up. But yeah, like what, what's up with that? Why, why did, why did he have to learn to walk? Whereas other animals can just walk. That's not fair. They, I've, I've even heard that period you described, uh, the year after birth is like the, the fourth trimester, you know? Sure. But that's like the, that's part of the cost of, of us having such titanic brains, you know, <laughs> we've got these huge, super complicated, sick ass fucking brains. Especially us three. Well, particularly the three of us. It's us. But, yeah. We're, but, the, we're the problem. And, and your son. He is 99th percentile with head circumference. Is he really good for him? This doesn't surprise me. <laughs> I'm not surprised at all. Of course he's, of course he's got a, a giant fucking brain. <laughs> Jim's kid. But, uh, <laughs> like, like, obviously we know that it's like, if those animals didn't walk right away, then they would just die because yeah, they have to yeah. be able to escape predators. Well, but there was a point at which we were in a similar situation, but I guess humans have been apex predators for a pretty long time. And I think even early man, sort of hunter-gatherer type human, was was probably an apex predator in most environments. Um, so they probably had the luxury of being able to really care for their young in a pretty extended fashion. Okay, what about the middle ground, which is like kangaroos, mm. which have mm. the creepy, mm-hmm. yeah, even even younger babies. Right, right. They like and give they, birth to a fetus and then like put it in there. And then it climbs up their body right. into their pouch. Yeah, that's crazy. And just kangaroos are born able to climb. Yeah. And my kid <laughs> still can't climb. My kid like will will like walk up to the edge of the tub and like peer over and be like, I want to get in there and like try to lift his foot up and he lifts it up like two inches. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh god. I can visualize this. I mean, I get it. That's tough yeah. when you're that short. I mean, I, I think it's it's probably like, do you know what a bower bird is? I don't. I don't think so. So bower birds are these crazy ass birds that build these really impressive structures called bowers, these nests out of sticks and stuff, and they take a long time to build. And the, the reproductive prospects of the bird in question is dependent upon how sick their bower is because the female birds will come by and like scope out the bower. And if your bower sucks, then they will chirp out and find another bird to fuck. And so they... The better bower bird. The better bower bird. With a better bower. Yeah. Now, fun fact about bower birds, they collect items. They collect little doodads, trinkets, always of one color, blue, 
they they go around and they collect all these little bits of blue stuff and they use those as decorations to adorn their bower. So depending on how sick their bower looks and how much blue stuff is in there and the quality of the blue items as judged by a panel of girl bower birds determines their their reproductive prospect. So these birds have been studied in captivity and if you take a bower bird and raise it in captivity away from any other bower birds, it will build a bower. There is something inborn in a bower bird that that instructs it. There is some kind of inherited set of instruction that allows a bower bird to understand that it should build a bower and that it should it should prefer big bowers. Right. <laughs> and it cannot lie. It it does like big bowers. Big blue ones. But what's and and also prefer, like innate that it prefers blue. It likes blue. Yes. So and and they and they collect blue stuff uh, without being taught that. But what's interesting is that they the bowers that they build in captivity are shitty. They're 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 not very structurally sound and they kind of fall apart and they're not really good, but they are trying to build a bower. So there's something in there that tells them that they should be building it, but they don't know how. In the wild, bowerbirds actually apprentice under older like male bowerbirds apprentice under older males for years to learn how to build those bowers as well as they do. So it's 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 such an interesting thing because there's this idea that people have that like oh animals are just born with all these abilities and to some extent that is true but they are reliant on experience to build those mem- to build those skills into actual usable skills so like a horse is able to like get up and run as soon as it's born based within seconds of being born but it probably doesn't run super good. And like, for example, it probably would, you know, run into a fucking ditch, you know, or run through a bunch of tall grass with holes in it and fall and break its leg or something. You know what I mean? Like it has to like learn experientially how to actually be good at running. Yeah. that That's, that's interesting. Yeah. I'm super fascinated by the idea of bird apprenticeships. Oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Could could I apprentice under one of these male bowerbirds? <laughs> You'd have to like probably bring a, a bunch of blue stuff as offerings. Oh yeah, I can I can handle that. <laughs> oh, I can get some fucking blue stuff. <laughs> uh, oh, what you got there? You got a little bottle cap, huh? You got a bottle. Well, what about these blue headphones, son? They got Bluetooth. <laughs> what what? <laughs> so, what about this enormous tarp? Yo, I got a tarp. It's so big. <laughs> You can make the entire bower completely blue. Check it out, bower bird. Spray you can't, paint. You can't even lift this tarp. That's how sick <laughs> at blue stuff I am. Imagine if bower bird suddenly had the the technology of paint. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they do. Oh, they do. They oh. do. They they make paint. They make. They take blue. They they mix their own pigments. Yes, they mix their own <laughs> pigments. Yes, and they paint. The interior of their bowers blue. Yes, that is a thing. All right. Okay. The I, I <laughs> clearly I'm going to be the person who's learning about blue here, not the birds. <laughs> That's why you need a bird apprenticeship, <laughs> Jim. <laughs> yes. That's why you need that apprenticeship. There's an art. There's an art. 
You can't just scatter a bunch of blue shit all over your fucking bower and expect people to – you got to place it. And actually, that's true. They do place things very particularly. And if a bower bird leaves its bower and you move around its trinkets, it'll come back and, and put them back. It'll actually – it knows that you move them and it'll – It'll look for the hidden cameras because yeah. it'll think it's a prank show. <laughs> come on out, Ashton Kutcher. <laughs> you moved my bottle caps. All right. You got me. Uh, you guys ready for another topic? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's do it. What's next? Uh, the next topic is this is a write-in. Quill asks, "What bones have you broken, and how?" And if you guys haven't broken bones, you can extend this to any sort of like injury where you had to go to the hospital. Okay. The main bone break I had nothing dramatic, but uh, I did break my nose in a fairly dramatic fashion when I was a child. We were taking my grandma to like the eye doctor and we were on a high floor and there was a whole wall that was just a window and the view outside was like gorgeous. It was like Muir Woods or something. And I yelled a window and I ran across the room to the window and I tripped. And the way my family tells it, I just flew straight through the air and just my whole body off the ground and smashed my face directly into the window. Wow. And uh, it wasn't a regular, it was an eye doctor, but they filled up like a latex glove with ice and uh, I sat in the waiting room and cried a little. Cool. But then I just went home and it was fine. <laughs> nice. I was waiting for this window to break in this story and you oh, were God. like, just tumble out. Of the- <laughs> Thank God. That a very terrifying concept. We were quite high up. Turns out window panes are strong as fuck. Yeah. Especially ones that compose an entire wall on an elevated floor of a building. So it's like that scene from Hudsucker Proxy. It's like a scene the guy like get the dude tries, like dude kills himself. He gets up on a table and he runs down uh, in like an office, like a, in like a, a conference room. You know, and like a skyscraper and it has like one of these giant wall windows. And he runs down and he dives through the window and tsh, breaks everywhere and he falls to his death. And then later in the movie, his replacement who takes his place at the company decides he's going to do the same shit. He gets up on the <laughs> table and he runs down and dives at the window and he just like slaps into it and falls. And, you know, it doesn't break. He bounces off of it. And like one of the guys is like, oh, yeah, it's a plexiglass. It's like this new thing. It takes place in like the 50s or something. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's for me. Thank God. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that dude from the Hudsucker Proxy saved your life, surely. Uh, I have uh, I have never broken a bone. Hashtag never broke a bone. Yeah. <laughs> Calcium life. Wow. Yeah. That's how I do. I don't know that I've actually really ever been hospitalized for an injury. Oh, no, no, I did. I was hospitalized for an injury. Yes. Give us the goods. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was. I did. Yeah. I, I was in high school. I was in South Africa. And... Um, a friend of mine lived in this huge like housing complex. He was a very uh, wealthy young man, or I suppose his parents were. And he lived in this very fancy gated community. Um, and he had a golf cart. And we used to take that golf cart out and just be whipping that fucking thing all over the place, you know, down hills and on the golf course, you know, tearing that thing around with rich South African golfers shaking their fists at us. A uh, ton of fun. Usually, Drunk and on drugs, which is the way you do um, when you're a kid. Very good. And yeah, we were going down. We we went to this bar and you know had a few had a few beers, and then we got in the golf cart and we went down this hill. My my friend also Mark driving, and then my friend James was in the front seat, and then uh, I 
uh, was on, there was no like back seat. So I was just like standing like in these two sort of indentations where you would like put your golf clubs, you know, and then you strap them in. But I was just standing in those two indentations with my two feet. Safe. Totally safe. And there's nothing to like hold on to, to like stabilize yourself. So I kind of just had both my hands like on top of the roof of the golf cart, you know? Like, I'm picturing this. Yeah. And we go down this hill. God, it was James owned the golf cart. Mark was was driving it, but he had never driven it before. So we're going down this hill and James is like, you got to slow down. We get to the bottom of the hill because if you take it at full speed, the golf cart will tip over. And Mark's like, what? What? You know, he's like, dude, you got to slow down at the bottom of the hill. And Mark's like, what? And so we go around this corner super fast, full speed, just put pedal down. And uh, the whole the golf cart started to tip over and it got over on two wheels. And I, being a very generous young man, I chose to dive off of the golf cart and shove it in the opposite direction so it wouldn't tip over. I mean, at least that's how I remember it. Maybe I just fell off. <laughs> a hero. It was a long time ago, but I was probably very heroic. And I dove off. You, you dove on this grenade. Did, did it work? Did you save the golf cart? Yes. Yes. The golf cart did not tip over. I smashed the shit out of my head on the ground. I just, we were going fast enough. I couldn't run fast enough to keep up. And there was a, a speed bump. So I tripped over the speed bump and just went straight down on my face and just pop, got myself right, right on my forehead. And I, and I was just like, you know, concussed. And uh, I, right. I was like, you know, couldn't couldn't really see or hear. And my ears were ringing and I was super dizzy. Permanent brain damage. Totally. Super disoriented. So my, my buddies like load me into the golf cart, you know, and they like drive to the gate of the housing complex. My, I guess like James, uh, doctor was just right outside that the complex. There was like a, like a little doctor right there. So he, we drew, we drove to the, to the, the gate and the security dude's like, you can't drive that thing outside the, the complex. And I'm like slumped over in the, in the, uh, especially with your drunk friend there. Yeah, for yeah. sure, dude. <laughs> yeah. I'm like slumped over in the passenger seat. And at the time I had very long hair. I had like chest length hair. And James is like, we got to go to that doctor. And the dude's like, you cannot take the golf cart outside of the complex. And James like reached over and just like peeled the hair back from my forehead to reveal just my face like covered in blood. And the dude's like, dude's like, go, go. <laughs> like Sent us on through. Yeah. Yeah. So I got like, I got like a, a brain scan or whatever, but they were like asking me all these questions in the, in the ambulance, like asking me questions about like, what day is it? You know, like where, you know, all, all these, and I was like, I don't know, dude, you know, like I couldn't remember anything. Like I couldn't, I couldn't remember like where we were. I didn't know what day it was. Like I didn't know, you know, anybody's name. I was really, really out of it. And then James, who was riding with me in the ambulance, he's like, where are we going to go get drinks tonight? And I was like, oh, Hagen's. Like, I remembered the name of the bar that we were going to go to <laughs> later. Gives an idea where I was at in high school. Awesome. Wow. So you told me this story like 10, 15 years ago, something like that. And I remember there being a thing. This might have been a different story that I'm conflating, but I remember there being a thing where the gate attendant they stopped letting ambulances into the gated community because burglars would just oh. start driving ambulances. Oh, I don't remember that detail, and like, but it's plausible. For context, at the time at least, South Africa had an unemployment rate of about 30%. 
And so crime was incredibly high. Like I remember at one point you telling me how you were instructed when you arrived, like, here's how you deal with the carjacking. They're just going to expect you to know what to do. They'll point a gun at you and you have to know what to do. That is true. Their rules. When we, when we first arrived, we got like a security briefing from a guy from like the, the U S consulate who gave us like a, just some, some helpful pro tips uh, yeah, and one of them was indeed the correct procedure for if you're in a carjacking, which for the record is, you know, dude walks out in front of your car while you're stopped at a stoplight or something and holds a gun up and you lower your eyes, put your hands up. If you're wearing a seatbelt, which you should be, wear your seatbelt, kids, you reach slowly with your opposing hand to unbuckle the seatbelt while keeping your hand up. And then you open the car door and then you step out of the vehicle and walk away in the opposite direction of the dude who had the gun with your head down. You give him the car is basically the tip. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you embedded a second PSA inside of the first. That was a good, good, yeah, oh yeah. good yeah. classy move. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Stay in school, kids. Yeah, oh, the third. Wow. Yeah, mm. The way the dude said it was like basically that like it's only marginally less convenient for the dude who is carjacking you to just like shoot you and now like the car's got blood in it but like honestly it doesn't take that much of the value away from the vehicle because they can just reupholster that seat and like replace replace the windscreen so it's like not gonna chap his ass to have to like shoot you so the the dude was like basically don't ever think that that dude isn't just gonna fucking kill you because like he will right so if you're in a situation like that just give him the fucking car so jim have you broken any bones yeah yeah i broke a toe this was like in middle school i think what happened was that i got angry at a video game <gasps> no and like I was like I, I'm, I'm gonna like take my frustration out, uh, and I was, I wanted to start kicking things, but I was like I'm gonna be safe, and I brought out a sleeping bag, and I was like just wailing on the sleeping bag with my foot, and then like for one of the kicks, I was like standing on the sleeping bag with my other foot, and it slipped out. I just landed wrong on my toe. The, the most ridiculous events in my life. <laughs> That's a good one. So, did did you do like the full like Looney Tunes like whoop where you like flip flip over and did you did you slip on a banana peel, Jim? I mean, no, but it was it was probably slipperier than a modern banana peel. Mm. Like uh, my understanding is that this might be a myth. Uh, there's a lot of um, banana myths on this show. Oh my God. I'm intrigued. In intrigue. Uh, the the previous banana myth was that um, the banana that the Cavendish replaced, the Big Mike, was the banana that actually tastes like banana flavored candy. Whoa! No. Oh my god! Uh, which I had I had read I had read and then I told that to my wife and then she said it on the podcast a week later and then I was like I'm sorry, honey. I read later on that that was a myth. Oh. No. <laughs> oh no! Wow! But is there such a thing? Is there such a banana? Does su do, does such a banana exist, Jim? I have to know. They still exist. They cannot grow them at scale because of uh, fungus that is just in endemic that makes it impossible to like grow it at 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 scale such that you could sell it as produce. But you can get them um, at specialty places. Like there's a website. This is the third time I've talked about this website on this show. <laughs> Uh, but listeners will listeners love it every time. Miamifruit.org can get a big box of the Gros Michel uh, for it costs a hundred bucks, including oh shipping. God. What? But you get like ten pounds of bananas. 
You can't even eat them fast enough. You have to have a banana party. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's exactly what you have to do. (laughs) It's a lot of banana bread. That is so exciting to me because... And I and I must be in the minority here. I like love that fake banana shit, dude. Mm. I love Gross. it. I'm all about fake banana, dude. But but wait, wait, that's the myth part. <laughs> that's the part that's not true. Oh wait, what? That the part the part that's the myth is that that's what the fake banana flavor was based on. The part I didn't even get to the part that was the new myth, which is that which which might or not might not be a myth, which is that the uh, the Gross Michel banana peel is the one that was really slippery. And so that's the one that, like, if you leave it in the path of your enemies, they're definitely going to break something. The dangerous banana peel. Right, the the sneak attack banana. Wait, so you're telling me that there is not a banana that tastes like fake banana? It's fake, dude. Well, that's that's been a roller coaster, and my heart is broken. (laughs) Oh, no. I'm I'm crushed. My day is ruined. That's what what we do here on Topic Lords. (laughs) Crush people's spirit. (laughs) The only thing I was living for was the hope that... There was a banana that tasted like fake banana since I heard about it a minute ago. That's been my purpose for a living. If if it turns out that it does taste like the fake banana, you need to come back on this show. That's yes. a fact. That's definitely true. And let people know. <laughs> Yo, banana party in my place. You gotta tell the people. Reveal it's, the truth. The yeah. banana truth. Are you guys ready for another topic? Sure. Yeah, yeah, let's do another topic. Uh, Surely, your topic here is, I'm not sure how to pronounce this word, hypnagogic hallucination slash anxiety. Yeah, good times. So this is uh, an exciting thing that I found out I get. So basically, the state of hypnagogia is sort of like when you're falling asleep. And right before you fall asleep, if you are having a hypnagogic hallucination, uh, you will be in a state where you know that you are awake and you feel awake, but your brain has started to sort of go into some element of dream state. And so then you can hallucinate very, very strongly and vividly. And it sucks Mm. a lot. But uh, I first found out or I first started having these. I had them every once in a while. And it's always it's mainly based on like shadows and like your brain finding a pattern in the shadows so if it oh because p.s your eyes are fully open you know like oh yeah you're it's like you're you're really oh yeah you, know. you you can stand up and walk around and the hallucination will remain um my hallucinations personally never moved it, they weren't auditory at all it was complete just usually a figure standing completely still did you give him a name no, <laughs> maybe I should have. Um, but for <laughs> for a long time, it like I had a few here and there that I didn't really think much of, and then there was a point where it was just happening all the time. And at first, it's even more terrifying. I would like spend the night basically with like the covers over my head, trying not to flinch or move because I thought I would like attract the attention of the figure or the thing or whatever. And it's really weird because you're not really in a completely rational state. Like, you know, you know, you're awake and you actually also generally know it isn't real. Like the whole time you're like, I know it can't be and it isn't. And I know I'm awake and moving and can talk and. But but it's like real in the way that dreams feel real. Like whatever button it's pressing in your brain does what it needs to to make you feel like scared and feel like it's really there. 
So it's interesting because when you like talk about it, it's like, oh, of course it's fine. But at first it's truly terrifying. (laughs) The first time I became aware of what was going on was like, basically like we're in bed and I sort of just became aware that Shirley was like sitting upright, just sitting bolt upright in bed silently in the dark. And I, I was like asleep. So I was like, Oh, I was like, everything okay, babe? And she was like, like, there's someone in the room. <laughs> I was like, I'm like, what? What? She's like, there's someone standing in the room, like right now in the corner of the room, there's someone standing there. And I was like, oh, fuck, you know? And I, I'm like in, I'm in like, I'm going to kill somebody. You know what I mean? I like, I'm ready to go. I like, you know, sprung out of bed and like turn on the light and I'm going to go like tackle this, somebody standing in the fucking room like a creeper. <laughs> and, and lo, there was no one there. That was the, the, the first time I became aware of it. And I'll tell you what, that was a very frightening experience. And you had many, many, many more after that. True. And sometimes, you know, until the point where you just knew that it wasn't real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty <yeah>. early on. That's <laughs> true. Eventually it would be, you know, I'd see like Shelly sit up and be like, babe, everything okay? And she'd be like, there's someone in the room. And I'm like, all right, can I, babe? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, good luck with that. <laughs> well, like it's weird. That's not true. I was always very nice. Yes, you were. It's weird because you like, uh, I would spend a lot of time sitting upright looking very intently at the spot because you're basically in a war with yourself to be okay. You're you're going in circles, rationalizing it, and with, while your brain is telling you there's an emergency and there's a person there, and then the other part of you is like good God, can I just go to sleep? Yeah. So for years, that was just terrifying the whole time. And then there was a point where I had to kind of like break the terror and I would walk up to the figure because if I like walked up to it, then it would break it and I could go the fuck back to sleep, which is all I wanted. (laughs) So then I started doing that sooner on in the process. I'd be like, all right, you know. Did it go away when he turned on the light? Yes. It's totally like shadows. So then we learned to eliminate shadows from our room, face our bed in a direction that wouldn't get shadows as much. Even like a sleep mask or blackout curtains can help because then you don't have any patterns for your brain to find images in. Yeah. Yeah. It turns out human brains are real good at finding patterns. A little too good. Yeah. A little little too fucking good. God, don't I know it. But like, it's weird because for a while I didn't want to talk about it because you sort of have this understanding Mm -hmm. that if you tell anyone that you have hallucinations. If you have to use, if you have to say like, oh, I have hallucinations, then you're immediately categorized as- Oh, you're a crazy person. Like you're crazy or you have a very serious problem and need to go to the doctor. And I mean, which you should probably go to the doctor. Like if you have this, go to the doctor and they can help you in other ways. But like, you feel like there's going to be a very real problem for you. But then I started just like talking about it very casually because I was like, this is- just something people should know about. And I have hallucinations and that's just what's going on. Well, so two things. One is that like, it's actually pretty normal to hallucinate at night while you're asleep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The other one is that especially people our age and younger, it's become a lot more okay to, to talk about mental health issues. Well, yeah. And then the more I talked about it, the more I found out how many other people around me also had either a hypnagogic hallucinations or some other kind of um, like sleep disorder, sleep paralysis or things like that. 
Um, so there are all kinds of crazy sleep disorders and people usually kind of live silently with them. But once you like get together and talk about it, it's fascinating. Things have been pretty good lately though. I got on, I didn't intend for this to be a solution for my hallucinations, but I had, um, like I have like generalized anxiety disorder, which got like really bad over time. And then I finally got put on meds for that. And I barely ever have hallucinations anymore. So I think it's probably, probably likely that being in a anxious mental state probably encourages that kind of brain activity. (laughs) That makes sense. Yeah. That's the thing with those kind of, those kind of disorders. Like, you know, there's, there's always a, a lot of like comorbidity with like anxiety disorders. since They're usually just like constellations of, symptoms and experiences and you know they can really overlap in a lot of different ways it's really not like super surprising that if you're experiencing you know one set of symptoms you could you know, very easily resolve that by getting medicated for you know a related issue one cool topic that's come up a lot most times when we talk about this is um, kind of the fact that you can kind of understand how people in the past maybe thought that there were ghosts yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely because like you truly, truly like your brain, you're seeing, it. you're seeing it and it is crazy to, it's hard to even explain how much like you both know it's there and that it isn't and can't be. But if you don't have like the knowledge and science to know that, of course, it isn't and all you have is the information from your brain, then you're seeing someone. And you're already a superstitious you know, thinker yeah. because of the way that you were raised in the society you're in. And like, yeah, like you turn that, like, yeah, you illuminate the room and, and the figure vanishes yes. without a trace. That's a fucking ghost, my friend. There's no other explanation if, for that. If you didn't have education, <laughs> then it, like if I weren't educated, if I lived in a different time or a different place, fuck yeah, that's a ghost. And the conversation that someone would have with me I would be very, very confident. No, no, something was there. Yeah. So yeah. it's really interesting because I don't believe in ghosts and yeah. I know what I'm seeing is part of this process. Yeah, that your your experience with hypnagogic hallucination really gave 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 me the opportunity to be more charitable with people that I would have dismissed in the past mm-hmm. as just being sort of credulous, non thinking type people. You know what I mean? Like like if someone was like, "Oh no, man! Like I saw a fucking ghost," I'd be like, "Dude, no, you fucking didn't." You know, like I'd just be like, I had like no tolerance for that kind of shit, which is not a very generous way to approach life or the people around you. And since you ha- had those experiences, it really gave me the opportunity to like rethink that fairly aggressive position, and you know, be like, you know, like they probably did, they did see something. You know what I mean, like. And however they choose to rationalize what they saw is like, whatever, that's, that's their call. But they're not just like lying to my face, you know, like they're, and they're not just like making something up for attention, which was like maybe kind of where I was at before. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, um, when I was reading about this, I realized that I had the, the fun doesn't ruin your life kind of hypnagogic hallucinations when I was younger. Oh, that's fun. Which is the the kind of sensory hallucination where it feels like you're moving. Oh, yeah. Like around when I was 10, like for a few years around there, maybe into my late teens, I would feel like as I was going to sleep, I would feel like I was in an, like an enormous hammock swinging very slowly. Oh, wow. Fascinating. 
Yeah, and it, it felt extreme. It was like the, the motion was extremely vivid, even though I could like open my eyes and see that I wasn't moving. Oh, interesting. That's what? awesome. And that was, you know, very pleasant. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. I was about to say, what was your experience? Did you have any um, thoughts on like what was happening or why, or it just didn't matter because you were? I was just like, this is a weird thing about going to sleep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> this and is what life be, is. To be a kid. <laughs> very true you don't have to be scared of it you're just like huh yeah. god that's like something i really like you know like when I, so like when i was like in my 20s i was like really felt like i had a handle on mortality like like really felt like i had my hands around it as like a concept that i could get ready to throttle it yeah basically i had sort of determined that i didn't think that there was a god or a higher power or anything like that and was you know pretty confident that when you die you're just gone and that's a scary thought but you know i i felt like i'd really grappled with it and i'd experienced a little bit of existential dread and you know kind of worked through it on my own terms and I felt pretty good about it you know this was also back when you smoked that's true and and was self-destructive in a ton of other ways you know <laughs> um just a just a, a, a lot of really poor decision making and, and and then like in the last couple of years, I mean, particularly in the last one year, so like I'm like 33, 34, I suddenly realized like, oh no, that existential dread you were feeling before, that was fucking kid stuff. <laughs> here's the real, here's the real shit. Oh, you want that real existential dread? How about you're like up all night? I was watching Gargoyles. And there's like a scene. There's like a scene in Gar, which is sick, by the way. If you haven't watched it since the '90s, it's it's really good, um, shockingly good, actually. But um, there's a, there's like a, just a scene in it where like they they like put a castle. This guy moves a a whole castle, like a medieval castle, up onto the top of a like a Gotham style super building. You know, like a this huge skyscraper, and the 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 skyscraper goes above way above the clouds. It's massively tall. It's impossibly tall. And then on top of it is a fucking castle that this dude put there. And there's a shot where one of the gargoyles is standing on the edge of like a palisade. And he's just looking out over the sort of clouds because they're like above the clouds. And just imagining being there and then imagining just being on top of a building that large gave me such like mortal terror oh, no. that I like had to like turn off the show. Oh, no. <laughs> but I was like, what is happening to me? Like, why is my existential dread so intense right now? <laughs> like, but that's just been my life. Like for, I don't know, about a year, maybe. I bet it doesn't. I bet then in like 10 years, you'll be like, man, I thought that existential yeah. dread. Well, well, interestingly, uh, the the woman who uh, like my boss at the lab I work at, I was talking talking to her about this. Um, she's awesome, and you know she's she's like a she's a, a neuropsychologist, uh, and she's like a primary investigator, you know, at this lab. Really, really cool lady. Knows a lot about brains and science, and you know all that stuff. And she she was like, you know, Matt, like honestly, you're right on schedule. Like, you know. The, your thirties are the worst for existential dread. And then once you kind of approach your forties, it'll drop off and it'll get, it'll only get better. That's what she said. Well, that's encouraging. Yeah. I mean, being 40 feels okay. 
I do feel like uh, my my existential existential dread was mostly in my twenties. So like, okay. I don't know. Maybe you're just uh, maybe you're just on a ten year delay. Maybe you're ten. Maybe you're ten years early, Dim. <laughs> that might be it. Uh, you know? So I'm afraid that's all the topics we have time for. Mm. But uh, so normally here's where I do the part of the show where I ask like, where can people find you on the internet? But yeah, nowhere. Yeah, good. We're not there. Good, smart. <laughs> Except to look for memes. That's, yeah, that's a good way to live. Yeah, that's... And then and then we share them in private chats with each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if you want to get into one of our private chats, all you have to do is meet one of us naturally, like in person through, you know, one of our normal social kind of circles. Just enroll in every cognitive science program in every university around the country. Yeah. Yeah. Get really into cognitive neuroscience. Just befriend us. And then befriend us the old fashioned way and, and really get in good with us. And then we'll, you know, maybe we'll give you an invite in one of our private chats. And then you'll get the memes. Yeah, and then you get all our, then you get all the memes that we found on Reddit that we post to them. Tell you what, why don't you each send me a meme and I'll put it in the show notes. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it'll, it'll be like being in the chat with you. Perfect. Wow. I love that. That sounds like such fun. And then you can look at the meme and just imagine you're in chat with me and Shirley. <laughs> And you'll say, oh, it's like Mark sent me this himself. (laughs) This is the experience of the internet. Is this what having friends is like? Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. You can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.